0: Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 15, he says, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. I'm going to echo his words this morning. I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Paris also. And I want to do so from an unlikely place in the scriptures. I want you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1 to a list of names. Matthew chapter 1 records for us the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The first 17 verses are comprised mainly by names. Lord, helping us, we're going to see the significance of a few of them, not all of them, and how they fit into the making known of the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry said this, and let me commend Matthew Henry to you. That's a name that most of you recognize. Don't sleep on Matthew Henry. There is much profit to be found in reading his commentary. It's available everywhere, free online, in used bookstores. It's not hard to find. Readily available. And he is a great help to me almost on every passage that I I consult him on. There seems to be a gem hiding somewhere that he has written. So I want to share one of those with you this morning. Matthew Henry said, it is by the light of nature that we see God as a God above us. And you've witnessed and experienced that when you look at a sunrise or a sunset or some form of creation. There is a sense of awe and reverence that the scripture says even the pagan can know Romans chapter 1, Matthew Henry goes on and he says, It is by the light of nature we see God as a God above us. It is by the light of the law that we see him as a God opposed to us. But by the light of the gospel, we see him as Emmanuel, God with us, God reconciling himself to us. A God in our own nature and in our own interest. That's what we're going to find here in Matthew chapter 1 in this list of names. I've entitled this sermon. I don't often give you the titles because I don't often title them until I have to make a title for them on sermon audio. But I've entitled this one, Grace in Genealogy. I don't know if many of you have discovered have. Studied the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew and Luke. They differ greatly, and I'm going to speak about some of that here in just a moment. But both of them are very pointed. Both of them are presenting Jesus to a specific audience. And this list of names, at first, seems to be of little profit. In any genealogy you read in the Scriptures, it seems to be of little profit, right? When you... Or reading through the Old Testament and you come to those chapters that are nothing but a list of names. And what is your temptation? Your temptation is the same as mine. We'll skip over it. I remember when I preached from Joshua and we got to that portion in the scriptures in Joshua where there is a genealogy. I didn't preach much from it, but I made sure that we read it because it is inspired scripture. It's a portion of the word of God that God has delivered to us. And though there seems to be little profit here, Lord willing, by the time that we're done, we will all have profited greatly from these names. This list seems to be a little bit chaotic if you compare it to the longer one in Luke. Matthew skips over names. He leaves out generations. And he does so, I think, for good reason. But... In the end, this genealogy is masterful in that it accomplishes what he sets out to accomplish, and that is to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. So it is not chaotic. It is written with great precision. Our God is not the order, our God is not a God of chaos, but of order. And let me just encourage you along that line. If you are a believer and your life seems like it is spiraling out of control, that's just a lie of the devil. The God of order is your God. The God that has planned every detail of your existence, knowing the number of your days. Though all seems to be chaos, He is the God of order and He will lead you decently, and in order. I want to to start by noting some of those differences between Matthew and Luke because I, I think it's important. If you study them, the third chapter of Luke is where you find the genealogy, and there are 42 names listed as being the lineage of Jesus Christ. Matthew only lists 27. He skips over a few. Most agree, as as I think is right, this corresponds to their differing purposes and their differing audiences. Both, however, if you trace them from beginning to end, you will end up with Jesus Christ. You will end up having read the inspired word of God. Matthew's intent is to show Jesus as being, in verse 1, the son of David, And the son of Abraham, if you follow down through the genealogy in verse 17, he concludes by saying, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14. Why did he leave out some generations? For this sake of making it compact, traceable, yet easily delineate the three separate groupings of 14 generations from Abraham to Christ. Luke, on the other hand, goes through the 42 names, and his intent is to show Jesus as being the Son of God. And that's how his genealogy ends. We're not going to turn there, but if you were to read it, it ends with the phrase, the Son of God. And just prior to the genealogy given in Luke, Jesus is baptized by John, the the Father speaks from heaven, and he says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, and then Luke goes into the genealogy to prove what he had just recorded out of history, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. So two different purposes, two different audiences, both of them reveal Jesus, In the intent of the author. Luke, the son of God. Matthew, the king. The promised fulfillment of both David and Abraham. And I think we have to deal with one verse out of the book of Hebrews when we refer to the genealogy of Jesus. Let me read you two verses there. This concerns Melchizedek, but Melchizedek as being a type of Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. This is why we turn here, verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life but made like the Son of God. Matthew and Luke give us the genealogy of the humanity of Jesus, traceable through lineage. The writer of Hebrews comparing Jesus or showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of Melchizedek's priesthood tells us that according to his nature of being fully God, he has no beginning of days. He has no end of life. He is without genealogy. So you see what we call the hypostatic union, the fancy term that we refer to, God, Jesus being fully God and fully man. The fully man aspect, great genealogy. Trace it out. Him being fully God, He is without genealogy. His, his days had no beginning, nor will they have no end. This is the wisdom of God, in making Jesus known. So we're focusing on the aspect of His humanity, which is important, which is a central fact of the gospel, which we must pay attention to. But I also want you to notice the difference in this beginning of the New Testament Scriptures, the New Covenant Scriptures, and compare them with the beginning of the Old Covenant, or what we call the Old Testament Scriptures. We're familiar with the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God created. And we're told there, and I quote from Matthew Henry again, the Old Testament begins with the book of the generation of the world, and it is its glory that it does so. The New Testament, however, herein excels the old, in that it begins with the book of the generation of him who made the world. So to borrow the phrase from the writer of the Hebrews, what we are reading here is something far greater, so much better than what has preceded it. In this genealogy that we're going to read, we will see the humility of Jesus on full display. We read in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul there writes of the condescension, the humiliation of Jesus, how you can trace the steps downward from glory into being made like a man experiencing death, even the death of the cross. So we go from the height of glory to the cross. But you can also trace in that second chapter the lowest of lows back to Jesus receiving the name that is far greater than any other name, where He is highly exalted by His Father, he begins in glory, descends into humanity, redeems humanity, and comes full circle back into the glory that he did not consider it robbery to set aside for a time. It's the greatness of the humility of Jesus. And it's on full display in this genealogy because of the names that are found. To be in his lineage. But we also see the, what I'm going to term, and this is my phrase, if you don't like it, it's my fault. The omnipotence of grace in genealogy. What I mean by that, the purpose of God in bringing forth our deliverer was accomplished in and through the sinfulness of humanity which comprised his earthly lineage. There are some real, what we might call, scoundrels in this list. There are names in this list that you, perhaps as a parent, would not want to go and read the full story of them out of the Old Testament to your children. But here they are, nonetheless, in the line of Jesus. So that brings us to the first point. Let me pause here and pray since I haven't done that. And then we'll, we'll begin in verse 1. Father, we come this morning. We ask you to open your word to us. Make it be as it is in truth, living and active. May it be the discerner of our soul. May it create in us the grace of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be proven to us again today to be the very power of God and to salvation in this gospel which it makes known. I ask for your help in preaching it. In Jesus' name, amen. Read verse 1 with me. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David and Abraham are here set forth by Matthew as being the trustees, if you will, of the gospel. They were the ones to whom the great promises were made. To David, of your line, of your seed, the king will come. To Abraham, the father of the faithful, in your seed, all the families, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Both of these find their perfect fulfillment in Jesus as being The Christ. Notice that's how Matthew begins. The book of the genealogy or generation. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. That's Hebrew for Messiah. He is the deliverer. Matthew writing primarily to Jews will go through this list of names and prove to them that he is exactly who he claims him to be here in verse 1. So the first section, and I'm going to take these in in four or five different groupings. And the first heading, I've I've simply entitled, From the Patriarchs to a Harlot. Notice verse 2, Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. If you look at the first, Abraham the father of the faithful, the one that received the promise of God. And we check it off the list and say, Abraham, fitting for him to head this list of the genealogy of Jesus. I understand it. He was a faithful man. He was looking forward to the coming of Messiah. He put his faith and trust in God to accomplish temporally through the birth of Isaac, his son, and then With eyes of faith looking down, he was trusting in the Messiah Christ to come, to be born of his own seed. So, Abraham, we understand, as being listed in the genealogy of Jesus, Isaac, the next name, the son of promise, who was himself a prefigurement of Jesus, the true son of promise. It's fitting for Isaac, not Ishmael, Isaac to be listed in the genealogy of Jesus. So we put a check mark by his name and we agree and we praise God that his name is here. We get down to the next Jacob. Jacob, the one who wrestled with God, the one whose hip was put out of joint, the one who was renamed Israel, the the great father of the Jews. We put a check mark beside his name. And we say it is fitting for him to be here. He is a patriarch. And then Judah, who can not remember that Jesus was and is the lion of the tribe of Judah? It's fitting that his name is here. But we read on from Judah in in these opening verses and we read of Perez and Zerah. By Tamar, and immediately there is scandal introduced into the genealogy of Jesus. This is one of the names that I told you you might not be comfortable going back and reading of her dealings with Judah to your young children. She had this relationship with Judah, but yet here she is in the lineage of Jesus not tucked away in some unknown place but fully disclosed in the beginning of the revelation of Jesus Christ by Matthew in his gospel again i'm going to quote Matthew Henry he says there is no veil to be drawn over the humanity of Jesus Matthew does not try to obscure. He does not overlook Tamar. He overlooks others whom we would think, put them there. They belong. But he brings forward this harlot to prove, and really we don't give him more credit than he deserves, the Spirit of God inspiring Matthew brings forth this name to prove to us and to give us A name in this list that we can attach to verses like Romans chapter 8 and verse 3 when it reads, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. Now keep in your mind the distinction between sinfulness being in the lineage of Jesus and sinfulness being in Jesus. That's a line of demarcation that we must hold lest we fall into some great heresy. But we deal with the truth as as it is given, given us. We go from Abraham to Tamar in short order. Grace in the genealogy of Jesus. God so ordering the affairs of men To accomplish his own purposes. We might think from a carnal reasoning standpoint and logic that Tamar would have completely hijacked the plan of God. But in the mind and heart of God, much to the contrary, list her name in the names of of those from whom Jesus descended Because everything about Jesus, from his birth, from his conception, from his being the creator of the world, from before the foundations of the earth, to his now being ascended and seated at the right hand of God, everything about Jesus Christ drips with grace. And it drips with mercy. Even something as dry and seemingly boring as reading through a list of names. But we move on from that first point of the patriarchs to a harlot, and we get to what I'm calling the second the second order here, the order of kings. Again, there are great names listed here that we would heartily sound an amen to. We're reading in chapter excuse me, chapter one, down in the middle of verse six, or beginning with verse six. Now realize we skipped over verse 5, which there is tremendous gospel truth in verse 5 with the mention of Boaz, Rahab, Rahab, the harlot again. There's four women listed in the genealogy of Jesus, two of them far, far from being in their original context virtuous. Rahab begot Boaz by Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. So the same that we said for Tamar could be said of Rahab, yet here she is. So the order of kings in verse 6, there are righteous kings and there are some extremely wicked kings. Kings, perhaps the most wicked of all is found in this list. And Spurgeon said of this list of kings, none of them are perfect and some of them are as bad as could possibly be. They couldn't get any worse. In destroying the pure worship of God under the old covenant, some of these names could have not been worse if they had tried. Corrupt at every turn. But yet we read in verse 6, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Again, there's scandal in the genealogy of Jesus. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz. Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon. And Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. So in reading that list of kings, we see great names, great kings, righteous kings. Sinful, yes, but accomplishing the purpose of God according to righteousness and leading their people. And then there were The wicked of the wicked, mentioned right here in the genealogy of Jesus. But what I want to do is just focus in on the most familiar. The most familiar being David. Let me give you just a brief snapshot of the life of King David. These are things that we know well, but we are profited in remembering them. David was chosen by God in the purity of his youth. As a shepherd boy, we might say David could not have been more pure than he was. Untainted and unspotted by the world, he lived with sheep. But he was chosen by God. We might even say he began to be trained by God. David says in another psalm, you have trained my hands for war. How so? He is the one who killed the lion with his own hands, right? The Lord had trained his hands for battle, for war. But even though chosen in the purity of his youth, he was also blessed and anointed of God very early in life to be king. You remember the the record of the prophet Samuel looking at one of David's older brothers who was tall and strong and handsome. And Samuel looking with with carnal eyes. It says, surely this must be the Lord's anointed. But he runs through that whole list of Jesse's sons. And each time the Lord says, no, no, no. And he he says, is there anyone else? There's this young boy out watching the sheep. What does Samuel say? Bring him in. And there the Lord leads him to anoint him as king. He is the one the scripture refers to as the man after God's own heart. Or the sweet psalmist of Israel. He is the one who in verse 1 of this chapter we're looking at. Received the promise of God that from his own seed the king would come. He was the one of whom they, they sang David has slain his tens of thousands, which so incited Saul, of whom they sang, had only slain his thousands. David was mighty in battle. He reigned his kingdom with might and strength. He was feared by all the surrounding kingdoms. Then what happens? He falls into grievous sin. Not only in taking Bathsheba to be his own, but you remember how he had her husband. One of his own mighty men. Don't leave out that detail. Uriah was one of the mighty men of David. David at some point in time had hand-selected this man to be a close defender of himself. At one time, Uriah was highly regarded and revered in the eyes of David and exalted to a place of great position. And then in another time, in the weakness and in the depravity of sin, this same man David put on the front line of the battle and then withdrew from him so that he would be killed so that he could have his wife. That's a revelation into the heart of the man who was after God's own heart. We know he falls into grievous sin. He was rebuked by the prophet. After agreeing with the message of the prophet, yes, yes. And then the prophet turns all of those words Nathan did on himself and says, David, you are the one of whom I'm speaking. He was greatly chastised of God. The sword never departed from his house. Son after son after son died and revolted against his kingdom. The son that was conceived with his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, his own life was taken. But then how greatly David repented. And aren't you thankful for Psalm 51? You can go and read the great repentance of David. How a man after God's own heart falls into great sin, greatly repents. He was restored. And he dies as a king Withstanding many assaults against his own kingdom. And here has the great designation of having Jesus Christ being named as his son. The son of David. I bring all of that out just to reiterate, reiterate the point. That tucked and embedded in this genealogy is my story and yours. And it's not veiled over. It's not skipped over. Jesus Christ chose and willingly was identified with such men as David, with such women as Rahab, with such women as Tamar and Judah. We are left to, and to rightly assume if Christ had so wished, he could have had his genealogy read, and rightly he could have descended only from the best of humanity. Only from the very best of the best. But so that grace would be exalted to its rightful position in this genealogy, we find some names which we certainly are surprised to see. But it's not just the patriarchs, and it's not just the harlots, it's not just the kings who are found in this list. We also find some obscure and unknown names, there are names listed in this genealogy. You can't find anything about them in the Old Testament. Nothing at all. They're scattered throughout this genealogy. The application of that, I suppose, would be the importance of every life, none insignificant. I guarantee you, there are some, someone sitting here this morning thinking, my life is completely insignificant in the kingdom of God. Names like these prove that that's faulty and wrong thinking. God has chosen the weak things of the world. There are not many mighty or many noble called. But these obscure and unknown names also go very far in... Helping us understand a verse out of Isaiah. And I paraphrase. Jesus was a shoot out of dry ground. Came from nowhere. A shoot out of dry ground. You can get that image in your mind. A desert. The ground's all cracked. It's dry. And out of that dry deadness springs up a shoot. A green stem. That's very much what this genealogy looks like. It's a die Dry, deserted desert of wicked men and wicked women who have been redeemed by God through faith in the coming Messiah. But yet out of them, out of them, out of their deadness and dryness shoots forth the Messiah. Also, we're told that he was a stem of the root of Jesse. Jesse's stem was withered and dry and looked very much like that dead stump in your yard. If you have one. But out of the sight of that stump in time. With the coming of Jesus Christ. Out of the sight of that dead stump shot a green shoot. Jesus the Christ. So the obscure and unknown in this list give us great hope. And shows forth the gospel in a great way. Because it's out of the deadness and dryness of your own heart that Christ has made himself known. The next group, beginning in verse 11 and 12. Excuse me, at the end of verse 11. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. Babylon you you know that story the the history you know why jeremiah is referred to as the weeping prophet the people of god being carried away to a foreign land as captives and so in the midst of the genealogy of jesus we find listed for us names that represent in slavery in foreign lands, and pictures for us what it's like to be enslaved in sin. We've all been carried away captive to Babylon. Yet just like these, we've been freed. We read earlier to begin our service we no longer slaves, but sons. Jesus led captivity to freedom. And so we get down to the summary of this genealogy. Let me read through the rest of it, beginning with verse 12. And after they were brought to Babylon... Jeconiah begot Sheltiel, and Sheltiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiud, and Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eleazar, and Eleazar begot Mathen. Mathen begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14. David until the captivity in Babylon are 14. From the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. If you look at those 14 generations as three groups, what you'll find the first grouping is the Davidic line rising to power. The middle group represents That kingdom flourishing in strength and might. And yet the third group shows decline. Again, Matthew Henry says, this third group dwindles into the family of a poor carpenter and then Christ shines forth out of it to the glory of His people. Again, all of this showing us the great humility and condescension of the King of Kings, to be numbered with transgressors, to be associated with harlots, to be the friends, to be the friend of sinners, to, the, to be the redeemer, kinsman redeemer of them all. I told you earlier that there was a line of distinction that we had to be careful to maintain. Though Jesus Christ was so closely associated with sinful humanity in His lineage and in this genealogy, the Scriptures unequivocally declare His perfection. We must uphold, defend the perfect Righteousness, the perfect sinlessness of Jesus. The birth records in the Gospels tell us with great precision that Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. The sin of Adam was not transferred to Jesus through lineage. Two passages in Hebrews help us with this. And I want to end with these. Because I've, I've gone to great length to show the relationship of Jesus with sinful humanity. Now on the other hand, in stark contrast to that, I want to show you how greatly separate He was from sinners. Those those two things are, are two truths of the gospel that we have to hold in clear distinction. Jesus as being fully man, greatly associated with sinful humanity through this genealogy. Jesus as being fully God has no genealogy we read out of Hebrews 7 and is greatly, significantly, highly separate From his creation. So the two verses. Or the two passages in Hebrews. First in chapter 4. We do not have a high priest. Who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But was in all points. Tempted as we are. Yet. Without. Sin. Let us therefore come boldly. To the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy. And find grace to help in time of need. There, the scriptures are declaring to us the sinless perfection of Jesus, even though he walked as you and I walk, tempted in all points without sin. The second passage is also Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 through 27. Therefore, he, Jesus, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us. Now notice the the description of Jesus. Such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So those two passages help us maintain the distinction. Yet without sin, separate from sinners. God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. What we've seen in this genealogy represents the humility of Jesus. Represents the omnipotence of Jesus. Shows forth the omnipotence of the grace of God in accomplishing his purposes. Through every attempt of sin to derail it. And in that sense this genealogy serves us well sin would derail you. And if you're not found in Christ, you are derailed. And there is nothing or no one that can put you back on the track. Jesus alone saves. Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, coming in the flesh, was declared to be full of grace. And truth. And he is such and always will be. The question. That I would ask you. From looking at this. List of names and. I realize we just scratched the surface. Of many of them. This would. Would yield a lot to your further study, no doubt. But the question to ask is, will you trust this Christ who has come to save your soul? Will you turn to God from idols, believe, and be saved? Will you repent and believe the gospel? I'm going to leave that question sitting right there on your conscience and ask the Lord to drive it in deep with clarity according to the truth. Let's pray. Father, we come and we thank you, Lord, for your word and including in it this genealogy of your son, Father, we're thankful how you did not veil over the ugliness that is there. But it's on full display. We can so closely associate with some of these who you used to bring forth the Messiah. He came to redeem these that we've read about. And He came To redeem us. Father accomplish that work in us. Which glorifies you. Bring some to faith. Bring many to faith. Lord in others. Do a work of quickening. And revival. That we may serve you. With new vigor and zeal with a new awareness of your either displeasure or pleasure at our service to you. We are thankful that no matter what we study about Jesus, we end up seeing grace. Grace in his interaction with sinners in the Gospels. Grace in his interaction with us here today. We give you all the praise and glory for what you have done for us in Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.